Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, interactive associate-in-chief. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Fertility and Sterility On Air. I'm Kurt Barnhart, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. Hi, I'm Eve Feinberg. Hi, Kurt. Micah Hill here. Glad to be here. Wonderful to have you both. Today, we're going to go over the table of contents for the December issue, but I want to put a plug in. Remember, medical research is not quite a date, so go back and listen to September, October, November at your convenience. So our goal here on Fertility and Sterility on Air is to cover the journal in a brief snippet, but again, it shouldn't replace you going back to reading the original literature. So we're going to start with the views and reviews section, and I think it's uh, Micah who will start us off. Thank you, Kurt. We have some amazing things we're going to talk today about. Fertile battle of first-line treatment of unexplained infertility. Should we use levothyroxine for antithyroid antibodies? And do we need to measure serum progesterone in ovulatory women? So good questions. We're going to start off with the views and reviews. So in the December views and reviews, Dr. Sigmund has put together a group of articles exploring telemedicine and reproductive health. This is very timely, obviously, given the shifts in medical practice due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Ustal and Blackman from Brown start off the discussion by looking at the efficiency and permanency of telemedicine services and how it depends upon a multitude of factors, including your technologic choices, governmental and insurance regulations, reimbursement policies, as well as staff and patient education and acceptance of telemedicine. Berg and colleagues from Stony Brook University discussed that moving forward, they foresee two different models of integrating telehealth. The first is more conservative, where we do initial intake and follow-ups remotely, but everything else is done in person. The second one is more aggressive, where we push almost everything to virtual telehealth, and we only see patients for necessary preoperative appointments. Finally, Rocker and Velez from the University of Illinois at Chicago discussed the unique challenges to virtual reproductive care, such as the fact that we don't have really proven home testing kits for hormonal tracking, for semen analysis, or for follicular monitoring. And they discuss the impact that COVID has had on clinical training, especially as surgical volume has decreased in, in many programs. So overall, this is a very topical set of papers as we all adjust to patient care and fellow education during the COVID pandemic. Is uh, telemedicine here to stay, Micah? I think it is. Um, we've certainly implemented it. Eve, what has it done in your program? I also agree that I think it's here to stay. And I think it also has broader implications for access to care, especially for those patients who may live a good distance from a clinic. So the next article is our fertile battle. And this month's fertile battle is titled, What Should First-Line Treatment for Couples with Unexplained Infertility Be? Intrauterine Insemination or In Vitro Fertilization? So this month's fertile battle addresses the debate of whether there's a role for IUI in unexplained infertility or whether couples should be going straight to IVF. The piece starts by defining unexplained infertility as one to three years of attempting conception unsuccessfully when routine testing reveals no discernible etiology for infertility. The pro-IUI as first-line therapy sections were written by Embellet and Van Eckelen and the straight to IVF sections were written by McNally, Ledger, and Duty, with editorial editor Cindy Farquhar as the senior author. The authors debate that the rationale for IUI plus ovarian stimulation first is based on the principle of pursuit of less aggressive prior to more aggressive therapy. This allows for improved mental health for the couple by not escalating to the most invasive and most stressful option first. They contend that careful patient selection, such as those without any evidence of even unilateral tubal dysfunction, those with an age less than 40, and interestingly, perhaps even those without HPV, attributes to higher success rates of IUI. In addition, the authors assert that the effectiveness of IUI versus IVF versus expectant management has documented success on a per-cycle basis but there are not longitudinal studies that address the issue of success rate over a longer period of time. 
The authors also maintain that less invasive treatment that is associated with minimal risks in monitoring is associated with better compliance for the patient undergoing treatment. On the other side of the debate are those that advocate for pursuit of IVF as first-line therapy in couples with unexplained infertility. This argument is based on the following ideas. Time to pregnancy is shorter with IVF. Multiple pregnancy rates are higher with IUI. IVF offers the potential for embryo banking to enhance optimal family building for those couples that want more than one child. And newer developments such as GnRH antagonists have shortened stimulation cycles, and the use of an agonist trigger has virtually markedly reduced the risk of moderate and severe OHSS. The other side of the mental health coin is that failed cycle after failed cycle, as often seen with IUI, leads to enhanced anxiety and depression and is a cause of marital stress and treatment discontinuation. And finally, technological improvements have allowed for IVF not only to be therapeutic, but also diagnostic, allowing for couples to make better decisions regarding their continuation of care. In summary, both sides pose thoughtful, well-constructed arguments for each of these treatment types. I personally think both are acceptable and should be offered to all couples and strategies should be individualized by couple based on careful counseling and principles of autonomy and shared decision-making. So Eve, when I read the article about IUI first, I said, that's it, we should outlaw IVF. Then I read the IVF proposal and I said, that's it, we should never do IUIs. So can't they just tell me which of these therapies is better? Well, I think IVF is definitely more successful, but I have to say I do agree that in some situations there's still a role for IUI. I'm not ready to give it up just yet. I, I'm glad that we've moved beyond the discussion of gonadotropins for unexplained infertility, and we're just talking about IUI versus IVF. I think it depends on the patient. I think we counsel them on their age and their chances of success, and, and the patient can help inform that decision. Well, I think the only thing more controversial than IVF versus IUI is um, REI fellowship training in general. So I'm going to use that as a segue into the inkling uh, this month by Bill Sklaff, which describes the evolution of reproductive endocrinology as a practice as well as training and residency. It's aptly titled The Evolving Role of Reproductive Endocrinologist in Residency Training and Obstetrics and Gynecology. This is a very interesting piece. It indirectly asks if our clinical practice caused a change in the way we train residents, or is the way we're changing residents resulting in a change of our clinical practice? As Dr. Sklaff describes, the change in our practice can be summarized with acronyms. We started out as a field called RE, Reproductive Endocrinology. Later, we purposely changed that field to REI, Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility. And I think Bill and many others would argue that currently all we're doing is practicing I, infertility. Our training of residents has also changed. REI rotations used to be comprehensive and included the underpinnings of the physiology and chronology of many gynecologic disorders. Understanding the menstrual cycle is the key to understanding so many problems in OBGYN. But now, as Dr. Scalaf points out, our REI rotation is very loose, often diluted by vacation, and our residents are certainly not a critical part of our patient care as they are in oncology or MFM rotations. So I'll let you determine for yourself whether you feel our field is moving in the right direction, the wrong direction, or in an in inevitable direction. But for those of us who trained before the year 2000 in a different millennium, it really is a different world right now. I would note that rather than just reflect and complain about this change, Dr. Sklaff does end with a very important recommendation. We should be mapping out our reproductive endocrinology curriculum and rotations with clear objectives and expectations. These should not be dictated upon us by administrators, residency directors, or the ACGMA. Yeah, I couldn't agree more than this. I trained right on the cusp of the 80-hour work week, and when I was a third-year resident did a research project looking at the overall time pre-80-hour work week that residents were spending on REI and found that it was less than 5% of the residency training, and that was in 2002. And so I can only cringe to think about how that percentage has changed subsequent to the new workweek restrictions. I agree, but as, as this inkling says, it might be our fault that residency training is this way. So the question now is how do we fix it? Obviously a challenge for all of us uh, who teach in our specialty. So next is the ASRM pages, and we have two documents this month from the ASRM Practice Committee. 
The first one is on testing and interpreting measures of ovarian reserve, a committee opinion. The most important take home points from this document for me were markers of ovarian reserve do not predict current reproductive potential among women with unproven fertility or who don't have a diagnosis of infertility. But AMH and AFC are good predictors of both low and high ovarian response to stimulation. AMH and AFC are only weakly associated with outcome measures in IVF, such as egg quality, clinical pregnancy rates, and even live birth rates. Extremely low AMH levels should not be used to refuse treatment to women who want to do IVF. The second document is on the recommendations for reducing the risk of viral transmission during fertility treatment with the use of autologous gametes, a committee opinion. The three take-home points from this document, one, people with HIV who take antiretroviral therapy as prescribed and achieve and maintain a undetectable viral load have effectively almost a zero risk of transmitting HIV uh, via intercourse. Infertile couples should be advised that transmission of viral hepatitis and HIV in assisted reproduction is possible, but the magnitude of that risk is very, very low. Viral screening of intimate partners undergoing fertility treatment is not a requirement, but could be recommended to help ensure that appropriate precautions are taken to greatly minimize the risks of transmission to both their uninfected partners and to the future offspring. So I think there are two really important points from this document, from the second one about infectious disease. The first is that couples who have where they're serodiscordant for HIV, the CDC now recommends that intercourse is okay. And so for those couples who are trying to conceive, the document is now saying that they can go ahead and try to conceive spontaneously without, the, without going straight to IUI or ART. And I think the second point is that they talk about the use of PrEP um, in the zero, in the HIV negative partner. And so it's a substantial change in practice from the last practice document. Thanks, Eve. I can't help but correct you with one of my pet peeves. Women don't become pregnant spontaneously. So it's nice that the CDC is saying that women can still have intercourse and get pregnant without medical assistance, but I just don't want them spontaneously uh, reproducing. So we're going to now move on to the original articles, and I have the privilege of talking about the first one, which is in the assisted reproduction category. This paper is titled, Ovarian Simulation Increases the Risk of Ectopic Pregnancy for Fresh Embryo Transfers by Dr. Wang and others from Tokushima University in Japan. So ectopic pregnancy is almost uniquely a human phenomenon, and interestingly, despite a substantial amount of research, we really don't understand its cause, but instead have uncovered many associations. So it's known that an ectopic pregnancy is more common after assisted reproductive technology. Decades ago, this association was suspected to be the residual from tubal infertility, at that time a major indication for IVF. However, it now appears that ectopic pregnancy is higher after IVF, independent of underlying indication. This study investigates an unanswered question regarding ectopic pregnancy and IVF. For example, is it the ovarian stimulation that's associated with risk rather than the underlying diagnosis? The study uses the Japanese Assisted Reproductive Technology Registry. One advantage of this registry is a unique practice in Japan which limits PGS and the use of donor. But more to the point, it has a relatively high number of um, unsimulated IVF cycles which can be used as a comparison group. For example, about 7% of cycles in Japan are unsimulated, whereas only about 1.5% are reported in SART. This group can serve as a control for stimulated IVF cycles, and therefore we can look at the incidence of ectopic pregnancy and we can compare them. So evaluating around 70,000 clinical pregnancies, the ectopic pregnancy rate in Japan was around 1.5%. This number in itself is not surprising, but the main finding of the study was that ectopic pregnancy was strongly associated with ovarian stimulation and in particular with the use of Clomid. So that's the novel finding. The use of Clomid with and without gonadotropins increased the relative risk of ectopic pregnancy around fourfold. The risk of GnRH agonist and antagonist protocols were also evaluated and found to have about a threefold increase in ectopic pregnancy. Of note, the confidence interval overlaps, so you can't definitively say one protocol is higher risk than another. The study also confirmed many other aspects that we think we know about ectopic pregnancy. There's a lower rate of ectopic pregnancy in frozen embryo transfer compared to fresh. There's a lower rate of ectopic pregnancy with blastocyst transfer as opposed to cleavage stage embryos. 
but the study was unable to confirm any difference between GnRH antagonist and, and agonist protocols or an increase in topic pregnancy based on the number of eggs retrieved. So as described in an excellent accompanying reflection piece, this paper provides novel incremental information regarding the risk of ectopic pregnancy. We can still only speculate regarding the mechanism. While I've heard many theories about this, alterations in uterine contractility, ciliated tubal function, abnormal hormonal milieu, all potentially contributors, to be honest with you, as it says in this editorial, today we still do not know why embryos get lost along the way. Yeah, that's fascinating. I can't help but wonder if some of it has to do with endometrial receptivity. We know that Clomid has anti-estrogen properties, and there's some talk about the endometrium having GnRH receptors. And so if you block those and you block estrogen activity in the uterus, it may make it less receptive for implantation. Just a thought. Interesting theory. I hope someone picked that up, and we'll see a paper about that soon. Kurt, as an epidemiologist and someone who's done research in this area, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the potential for confounding in the study and, and the limitations in assessing ectopic pregnancy in a, in a registry set. Thanks, Micah. I think you're right. Uh, I think large data sets like this all have limitations. We're, we can't be 100% sure that all ectopic pregnancies were reported and there could be underlying confounding. But having said that, this is a novel comparison and does certainly add incrementally to our understanding. Great. Thank you, Kurt. So moving on to the next topic, we know that there are multiple media embryo cultures available commercially. To date, the majority of trials don't demonstrate superiority of one media over another, nor do they demonstrate superiority of sequential versus single-step global media. Desaya and colleagues from the Cleveland Clinic this month report a comparison of two different global medias in the study called Randomized Study of Global Time-Lapse versus global media for blastocyst culture in the embryoscope, morphokinetics, pregnancy, and live births after single embryo transfer. They randomized sibling embryos to culture media and either a global media that was originally designed to be refreshed on day three, but was not refreshed, or a newer global media that was designed for the time lapse to not need to be refreshed over six days of embryo culture. They had 1,100 patients and over 10,000 2PNs which were studied. While they found some differences in morphokinetic markers between the two media, the time to blastulation and euploid embryos between the two sibling arms were similar. Implantation and live birth rates and fresh and frozen transfers were also similar. So the authors conclude that both media perform equally well in a time-lapse incubator. In the commentary from Hutchinson at Northwestern University, she focuses on the utility of time-lapse and if any changes might not be due to the actual morphokinetic data, but are actually due to not having to pull the embryos out of the incubator. I think this study design was really well done with the sibling split to analyze outcomes up until the blastocyst stage, but we do have to be cautious with how we interpret sibling embryo studies when we're looking at live birth data. When we're only transferring embryos from one arm or the other, we're essentially throwing out half of our randomized data and we're really no longer analyzing a randomized control trial. Yeah, that's an excellent point. The next paper is titled, Is Conception by In Vitro Fertilization Associated with Altered Antenatal and Postnatal Growth Trajectories? And this was done by Steve Turner at the University of Aberdeen. This was a retrospective historical cohort study comparing cross-sectional and longitudinal differences in fetal measurements between individuals stratified by method of conception. They linked data from three separate large databases in Scotland for births occurring between 1997 and 2012, and they linked that to height and weight measurements of the children at age five. They compared groups of fresh embryo transfer, frozen embryo transfer, and natural conception. The measurements they used were first trimester crown rump length, second and third trimester head biparietal diameter, fetal length, and estimated fetal weight birth weight, and then height and weight at age five. And the principal findings of the study are that conception after fresh cycles had an erratic growth pattern, initially larger in the first and second trimester, but then smaller at birth and normal at five years, while frozen cycles were larger in the second trimester, but not apparent at birth or five years. There was a really great reflections on this piece written by Louise Hoyos and Dan Dumesic that talk about the contribution of both epigenetics and methylation on embryonic growth, as well as the potential for altered placentation to affect third trimester growth. 
Overall, the study is interesting and it raises the question of long-term health risks from altered epigenetics. And overall, I think it was incredibly reassuring. So they note differences during pregnancy, but do they try to comment about these differences later in life and are they clinically relevant? It doesn't seem by age five that any of them are clinically relevant. What they do talk about is the association of small birth weight with metabolic dysfunction later in life, as it's been linked, but the study only goes out to age five. So I think more, more data to follow. Great. Thanks, Eve. I'm going to change the topic a little bit and get back to stimulation. The next paper I'd like to discuss is titled Differential Impact of Controlled Ovarian Hyperstimulation and Live Birth Rate, Fresh Versus Frozen Embryo Transfer. The study was performed by Dr. Gerber, who is the first author, and Dr. Buyuk from Albert Einstein College of Medicine and the Eichen School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. So it's been hypothesized that certain characteristics regarding an IVF cycle, independent of the underlying diagnosis, may impact success rates. For example, it's been thought that long cycles and cycles that have high doses of gonadotropin may be detrimental. In this study, the authors used the SART database to control for ovarian hyperstimulation cycle length and total dose to see if there's a differential impact in fresh or in frozen embryo cycles. So let me explain that in a different way. The authors are trying to isolate the mechanism of impact. For example, if the impact is due to oocyte development, an effect should be seen in both fresh and frozen cycles. However, if the impact of dose, for example, is due to endometrial receptivity or other unknown factors regarding implantation, then the impact may be, may be perhaps only seen in fresh cycles and not in frozen cycles. So the authors looked at two years of SART data, including approximately 15,000 cycles of fresh and 3,000 frozen cycles. Live birth was the outcome, and the main variable studied was cycle length and cumulative dose of gonadotropins. The authors controlled for patient characteristics such as age, parity, body mass, and diagnosis. The main findings of the study was that the crude analysis, cycle length, and dose were both associated with a decrease in live birth rates. However, with multivariable analysis, length of simulation was no longer associated with the live birth rate, any alteration in the live birth rate, but cumulative dose was. In particular, a dose cumulative of more than 5,000 international units. Of note, this finding was only in fresh cycles and not in frozen cycles. Therefore, the authors concluded that high doses of gonadotropins, but not prolonged COH, is associated with decreasing live birth in those undergoing a fresh transfer, but neither factor significantly affected live birth rate in those undergoing a freeze-only cycle. This is an interesting study trying to isolate why our proposed logic that increased dose and length may be associated with poor outcome. To follow this logic, it would seem that perhaps the mechanism is more associated with the endometrium than with oocyte development. This should lead to other research into the area, as unfortunately we can't consider this question definitively answered using this data. The major limitation of the study, and other studies using the SART database, is that it's hard to control for unmeasured confounding, and especially to differentiate the innate differences between patients that had a freeze-only cycle versus those that had a fresh transfer. These underlying differences may be an alternate explanation of the findings of better prognosis despite a prolonged simulation or high dose in fresh cycles. So in an interesting reflection by Dr. Gordon and Ginsburg, it was noted that if this study does have direct clinical implications, it could be through another mechanism, such as the use of oral contraceptives. Use of oral contraceptives has been previously demonstrated to have a detrimental effect on IVF success rates. For example, we discussed this last month. The use of oral contraceptives independently may lower pregnancy rate, or they may result in the need for a greater dose or an increased length of simulation. All in all, pretty thought-provoking article. Yeah, I agree. And I think it really speaks to the underlying ovarian issue. Is it diminished ovarian reserve that requires the use of higher gonadotropins, and possibly those are day three transfers as opposed to frozen cycles, which tend to have higher quality embryos frozen. So I'm not sure that it's the fresh versus the frozen per se, but the underlying characteristics of the patients that led to the types of cycles that they underwent. On the other side, you know, you could consider that higher gonadotropin doses are associated with elevated risk of premature progesterone. And so that might be, that's not available in the SART database, so they couldn't look at this in this study, but that might be why we see a difference in, in fresh versus frozen.
So uh, next, we're moving on to artificial intelligence. We have another paper this month, just like we did last month. This one is called Novel and Conventional Embryo Parameters as Input Data for Artificial Neural Networks, an artificial intelligence model applied for prediction of the implantation potential. This is from Bori and colleagues at the EVRMA group. In phase one of their study, they looked at four novel time-lapse embryo markers. In phase two, they then took these four novel markers and applied them to an AI predictive model. And this was used to check it against conventional time-lapse morphokinetic markers. They used 451 embryos and 85% were used to teach the AI and the other 15% were used to test the model. The novel AI model improved the area under the curve for predicting embryo implantation by 9%, up to an area under the curve of 0.73. When they combined AI with morphokinetics, that area under the curve went up to 0.77. So the authors conclude that their four novel measurements are effective AI inputs for predicting implantation. Babayev from Northwestern in the commentary noted that while AI is promising for use in the laboratory, there's still a long way to go before it's clinically implemented. This study was retrospective and should be validated prospectively. And overall, while yes, the AI improved the input by 9%, the area under the curve was still in the 0.7 range, which would only be considered a fair predictive model. So Kurt and Eve, I'm curious on what you guys see as the future of AI in our field and, and how are you preparing yourself to read these papers and understand this area of research? I think actually next month's views and reviews is on AI or fertile battle. I can't remember which one, but I think that there's a lot coming down the pipeline for AI. And I think the bottom line is that physicians still can't be replaced. I would also add an epidemiologic point of view. AI is data-driven, meaning it will find an answer. And of course, we will publish that answer. So the real key here is validation to make sure that in further studies that these answers actually hold up to be true. Yeah, that's an excellent point. This next paper is titled Reproductive Sequelae of Parental Severe Illness Before the Pandemic, Implications for the COVID-19 Pandemic. This was a fascinating paper written by Alex Kasman with senior author Michael Eisenberg from Stanford University. The short and long-term impact of COVID-19 on fertility, pregnancy, and neonatal outcomes is still not known. While there are prospective studies such as the ASPIRE trial asking these questions, these data won't be available for quite some time. So this study sought to examine the impact of severe systemic illness on preterm birth and pregnancy loss when parents are exposed during the preconception period. The study utilized the IBM Market Scan Research Database and analyzed claims on pregnant women from 2007 to 2016 and linked these files to infants and fathers through family ID, and only infants with one mother and one father were included. Parental exposure to severe illness was identified in the three months prior to estimated conception, and pregnancy outcomes were analyzed. There were just under a million pregnancies observed in the study period with a loss rate of 21% and a preterm birth rate of 5%. Preconception respiratory severe systemic infection in both fathers and mothers was associated with preterm birth and pregnancy loss. Any ICU admission in either the mother or the father in the three months prior to conception was associated with an increased risk of pregnancy loss. A longer ICU stay was associated with a higher risk of preterm birth and a higher risk of pregnancy loss. And interestingly, preconception sepsis was in both mothers and fathers associated with a higher risk of having a child with preterm birth, while fathers with preconception sepsis had a higher risk of first trimester pregnancy loss. There was an excellent reflections piece written by Carrie Flanagan and Sonny Mumford from the NICHD cautioning that this study has selection bias and actually may be underestimating the damage from severe illness prior to conception, and that these patients that were observed actually conceived. What remains unknown is how many patients who had severe illness that negatively impacted fertility and prevented conception from occurring. I thought this was a really timely study in the wake of COVID-19. I do think it should be taken seriously, and perhaps we should be counseling patients where one or the other partner has severe disease warranting ICU admission 
to delay conception attempts for three or four months after recovery. Kurt, what do you think? There's always a big question about what public health statements we can make based on a study like this. I agree those are probably very prudent recommendations, but it's hard to know if this data is definitive. So I'm going to, again, change gears to a much more basic science way. I'd like to present an article entitled Low, K-L-O-T-H-O, which I'm going to pronounce Clotho, levels relate to aging is associated with diminished ovarian reserve by Dr. Zi and Zhao from Beijing, China. This is a case control study to explore the relationship between Clotho, and I may be mispronouncing that, but at least it won't get angry at me like the other authors that I've mispronounced. It's basically looking at the expression of diminished ovarian reserve. Approximately 160 patients with DOR and control women were compared, and granulosa cells from isolated fluid after oocyte retrieval were quantitated for Clotho levels along with um, serum levels using quantitative PCR. The findings include that both granulosa cell levels and serum clotho levels are significantly lower in patients with DOR. So my first reaction to reading this paper is, what the heck is clotho and why are we studying it? So this is a gene that is perhaps anti-aging properties, which discovered incidentally in 1997 when creating transgenic mice. This is well summarized in an accompanying reflection piece by Dr. Place and McGinnis. Transgenic mice lacking this gene showed surprising premature aging, including arthrosclerosis, osteoporosis, and infertility. So this gene has also been found in humans and may modulate such factors as insulin-like growth factor, transforming growth factor, and other cationic channels and transporters. So the reason that this paper is novel is it's the first study that relates some of these findings directly to humans. Of course, this study is preliminary and this does have some pitfalls, but it certainly would provide a wonderful biomarker or a scientific rationale. So I look forward to better characterization of Clotho and unlocking some of the mysteries of ovarian aging. Yeah, it would be amazing to have biomarkers that we could detect or know about early in life and think about proactive things like egg freezing for these women. Yeah, that would be a game changer, Eve, for sure. So we're moving on to the gynecology section of the journal now. And this month, we have another time to pregnancy and dietary study in FNS. Price and colleagues from Melbourne, Australia, present the paper Time to Pregnancy After a Pre-Pregnancy Very Low Energy Diet Program in Women with Obesity, sub-study of a randomized controlled trial. They analyzed 164 women with a BMI over 30, and they were randomized to either a standard diet or a very low energy diet that consisted of fewer than 500 calories a day. The main outcome was time to pregnancy in these non-infertile women who wanted to get pregnant within the next year. The study group lost 12% of their body weight compared to only 3% of the control group. In completers of the 12-week intervention, time to pregnancy was shorter in those who underwent the study group, the very low energy diet. The authors therefore conclude that the study supports very low energy diets for obese women wanting to achieve pregnancy. The commentary from Kim at Northwestern noted that only 60% of women in the control arm completed the study. This was compared to 84% who were in the study arm. Data suggests that patients who fail weight loss are more likely to withdraw from trials. She also discusses the broader context of is it worth delaying time to get pregnant in order to lose weight, because time to pregnancy to lose weight obviously can have an impact on fertility. This larger RCT that this sub-study was nested in is looking at pregnancy outcomes, and so when that data is available, that may help inform that counseling. My biggest challenge with this particular paper is the lack of reporting of per-protocol analysis. I think intent to treat and per-protocol are very important when we have large dropouts. The intent to treat tells us the real world use of the intervention, but the per protocol actually tells us the effect of the intervention. While the authors don't report that, you can back calculate it from the data, and the results are actually 60% in the control arm versus 70% in the intervention arm with the P of 0.32. So did the study really show benefit, or is it just that women in the control arm dropped out of the study uh, because they weren't losing weight? To me, that's the real question from this paper. I'm stuck on 500 calories per day. (laughs) I'm amazed that the adherence rate was that high with that low of a caloric intake. Yeah. I actually thought the dropout would be higher in the intervention arm than the control arm, so that, that was surprising to me. 
So I'm going to transition, and I am thrilled, Micah, to be able to talk about your paper, Low-Dose Aspirin in Reproductive Health, Effects on Menstrual Cycle Characteristics, with Blake Evans as the first author. Our very own Micah Hill is one of the other authors, with senior author Enrique Schusterman from the NICHD. Low-dose aspirin is increasingly used in women's health for the prevention of a wide range of disease. While we don't know the mechanism of action exactly, it's thought to be via decreased blood viscosity and increased blood flow. Given the more widespread use and that women have bleeding every month associated with menses, the questions these authors asked was whether low-dose aspirin was associated with alterations in bleeding patterns. And this was a secondary analysis from the EAGER trial that evaluated the effect of daily low-dose aspirin versus placebo on live birth among women with one or two previous pregnancy losses. The EAGER trial was a block-randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial for women who were attempting conception and had one or two documented pregnancy losses and no more than two live births. This nested trial was a large trial with a total of 915 women, contributing over 3,000 cycles for analysis. Menstrual cycles were self-recorded, including cycle day one and ovulation with LH surge detection kits. Both follicular and luteal phase lengths were assessed. Urinary reproductive hormones were measured up to six times per cycle during the first two cycles. Interestingly, the authors did not find any significant differences in total menstrual cycle length, follicular phase, luteal phase length between the low-dose aspirin and the placebo groups. I thought this was a really fascinating study, and overall, the results are really reassuring. Micah, since we have the privilege of having you on the call, perhaps you can answer a question for me about the study. The data captured were for patients who did not drop out of the trial. So to your earlier point about intention to treat, was there any analysis for the patients who did drop out as to whether they dropped out because of unscheduled bleeding or heavier menses as they desired discontinuation? That's a great question, and I don't know the answer to it. <laughs> I wish I did, because that would be a really nice question to answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I'll quickly change the subject. How's that, Micah? So the, the next uh, paper I would like to present is titled, Focal Adenomyosis is Associated with Primary Infertility by Dr. Bardon and Chaperon from Paris, France. So there has been a dramatic increase in our understanding regarding adenomyosis, and as a result, there's been a great increase in the number of publications on the subject. This increase could be due to our greater understanding of the disease, but it also could be because of greater surveillance of the disease. We have increased our ability to detect possible adenomyosis with imaging, such as MRI or high-resolution ultrasound. So there really are two fundamental needs in this area of research. First is an agreement on classification of the disease, but that's not what's studied here. The second is the question, is adenomyosis as currently diagnosed associated with primary infertility? This is a cross-sectional study from a single institution where approximately 500 subjects were categorized and diagnosed by MRI for the presence of adenomyosis and also the presence of primary fertility and secondary infertility. Approximately half of the group was diagnosed with adenomyosis and the other half had no evidence of adenomyosis. The main finding of the study was that the presence of diffuse adenomyosis was not significantly associated with the presence of primary or secondary infertility. However, the presence of focal adenomyosis of the outer myometrium was a slightly different story. There's a higher prevalence of primary infertility in those with focal adenomyosis with an odds ratio derived by logistic regression of about 1.9, which was statistically significant. An interesting sub-finding is that a very high percentage of women with adenomyosis also had endometriosis in this study. If a woman had diffuse adenomyosis, as many as 60% had endometriosis. If a woman was diagnosed with focal adenomyosis, as many as 90% had concomitant endometriosis. So as described by the accompanying reflection by Dr. Garcia Velasco, the study has a number of strengths and a few weaknesses. This is clearly a very well-characterized patient population. However, as often said, especially in a cross-sectional study, association is not cause. Further research needs to be done to characterize the link between adenomyosis and endometriosis, as well as the particular link between adenomyosis and infertility. 
Thank you, Kurt. So we have a, another paper this month from the uh, incredible group at the NIH who does epidemiology. This one is looking at SSRI use. So we know that SSRI has quadrupled in the past decade in the population, but the data is conflicting as to its association with time to pregnancy and pregnancy loss. So this is addressed this month by Lindsay Sharda and all from the NIH in a paper called Urinary Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors Across Critical Windows of Pregnancy Establishment, a Prospective Cohort Study of Fecundability and Pregnancy Loss. So this was also a secondary analysis of the EAGER trial with over 1,200 women trying to conceive, and they measured three different SSRIs in their frozen urine samples. 14% of women had SSRIs detectable in their urine. SSRI use had a 24% reduced fecundability, but overall, over the course of the study, live birth was not reduced if they used SSRIs. However, if patients were specifically using fluoxetine, there was an 18% reduction in live birth over the study period. SSRIs were not associated with miscarriage. The authors conclude that women using SSRIs may have more difficulty becoming pregnant, although SSRI exposure overall was not associated with pregnancy loss. But fluoxetine was identified as being a potential reduction in long-term live birth and deserves future study. The commentary from Kang and Jawa at UCSF notes that this study adds to the literature demonstrating that SSRI use may decrease fecundability in women. This delayed time to pregnancy, though, needs to be balanced against the risks of not treating depression for these patients. Yeah, and again, it really makes me question whether the underlying depression perhaps led to less frequent intercourse or delayed attempts at trying to conceive. And so I think it's just one of those things that's really hard to tease out, and you always want to balance maternal health versus possible pregnancy. Yeah, I'm really pleased to see articles like this in the journal because these are just such pragmatic, large-scale problems that I'm, they really need to be addressed. Yeah, and I think there's not a day that goes by that somebody doesn't ask me about should they get off their SSRI and what is the effect of that SSRI on pregnancy. So kudos to the authors for really doing a great job with this. This next study is Recurrent Pregnancy Loss, a Shared Stressor, Couple-Oriented Psychological Research Findings by Pauline Voss and other authors from Heidelberg, Germany. And the paper compares the psychological impact of RPL on affected men and women to determine risk and protective factors in both partners. I think this is a nice segue from our prior discussion on SSRIs because the incidence of depression and anxiety disorders increases with the number of pregnancy losses, childlessness, poor marital status, and low social support studies are needed to better understand the factors at play and how to best target psychological support for patients who are experiencing recurrent loss. This was a prospective study for all patients that were referred to this special unit for RPL in Heidelberg, Germany, and couples were asked to participate in both a qualitative and quantitative questionnaire study. They used a screening instrument that was validated for fertility patients with five subscales assessing anxiety, depression, social support, cognition such as acceptance and helplessness regarding fertility problems. They used additional validated questionnaires on anxiety, depression, and inventory of social involvement. There were 194 participants in this study. I don't think that the findings that were, were that surprising but they do highlight the effect of RPL on the male partner, which sometimes can be overlooked. 48% of the women and 19% of the male partners had scores that put them at risk for anxiety. 52% of the women and 19% of the men showed risks for depression, and roughly 30% of both men and women showed risks for limited perceived social support. Women thought more about their experience of RPL, and they experienced more pain with the diagnosis, but they also revealed a stronger use of all coping strategies compared to men. They did find that there were protective factors such as parity, already having a child with the same partner. They also found that a perceived satisfying relationship and ability to talk about the loss was correlated with a lower risk of depression. Interestingly, age, duration of conception attempts, and educational level, as well as time span since last pregnancy loss, were not a risk nor a protection. 
And the authors conclude that the male experience of RPL is significant and must be considered when treating the couple. There was a reflection written by two of our Northwestern residents, Rachel Ruderman and Bahar Yilmaz, and our recently graduated fellow, Dr. Dana McQueen, who stressed the importance of this study was to demonstrate that the couple dyad must be treated and not to solely focus on the female experience. I think this is a really important take home point from the study that will stay with me as I transition this into clinical practice. The next article I'd like to present is in the reproductive endocrinology subgroup. The paper is titled Anthropometric Biomarkers for Abnormal Prenatal Reproductive Hormone Exposure in Women with Meyer, Rokitansky, Kuster Hauser Syndrome, Polycystic Ovary Syndrome, and Endometriosis. Complex title, complex paper. Bear with me on this one. This paper is from Amsterdam University by Dr. Peters as first author and Dr. Lambach as senior author. The goal of the study was to assess whether prenatal exposure to reproductive hormones are related to these three disorders that are in the title of the paper. This is a case control study where 172 women were enrolled and characterized into four different groups, the three reproductive conditions I just described, as well as a control group. So two biomarkers were assessed to see if they predicted or were associated with these disorders. However, the biomarkers used are not what we usually consider, and they're not molecular biomarkers. What was measured was anthropometric biomarkers, such as anogenital distance and a digit ratio between fingers. So let me explain. These two biomarkers are proposed to be indirect measures of intrauterine androgenic influence. Increased androgenic exposure will result in a longer dimension from the anus to the clitoris, whereas lower androgen levels will lead to a shorter distance in women born after this exposure. This distance is hypothesized to be increased with Meyer-Rokotansky-Kuster-Hauser syndrome. Interestingly, women with endometriosis, the anogenital distance is hypothesized to be shorter because of perinatal estrogen influence. The ratio between the second and the fourth digit is also hypothesized to be an indicator of androgen exposure during fetal development. For example, there's a decreased ratio in women with PCOS that has been found in some studies but has not been universally confirmed. So with that, the goal of the study was to use these biomarkers to study Meyer-Rokotansky-Kuster-Hauser syndrome while also comparing and validating these measures in women with PCOS and endometriosis. The hypothesis was that exposure to androgens result in PCOS and Meyer-Rokotansky-Kuster-Hauser syndrome with the opposite effect may be true in women with endometriosis. So, do these findings support the use of these biomarkers, and do these biomarkers reflect the hypothesis that intrauterine events can lead to disorders in offspring? The findings of the study confirm some of these hypotheses. The study does find limited evidence of biomarker association in women with these disorders. Anogenital difference was shortest in women with endometriosis and longest in PCOS. Now, there was some subtlety in these findings with the specific measurements. For example, some of the anogenital measurements were statistically significant in women with Meyer-Rokotansky-Kuster-Hauser syndrome, but not all. There was no difference in digit ratios in any of the groups. So, in summary, this is a very interesting study that makes one consider the underpinnings of potential associations with common reproductive disorders. While we may not be able to use these biomarkers for diagnosis, it is more and more likely that this study and others like it are indicating that the intrauterine milieu influences the development of offspring and may contribute to common reproductive conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, and MRKH syndrome. They should remind us all that health affects reproduction and reproduction affects health. Aspects that may contribute to a woman's health may start as early as implantation or during the early embryonic time period. So sticking with reproductive endocrinology, there's been significant controversy over whether we should give levothyroxine to infertile women who do not have overt clinical or subclinical hypothyroidism. And there was a recent large RCT that evaluated the effect of treating these patients with thyroid autoimmunity who are not overtly hypothyroid or subclinical hypothyroid. And this actually doubled the number of RCT subjects that was available for analysis. Therefore, Wang and colleagues from Sichuan University and around the globe provided an update review in their paper called Effect of Levothyroxine on Pregnancy Outcomes in Women with Thyroid Autoimmunity, 
a systematic review and meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials. They had six trials with over 2,000 women that were available for analyses. Live birth was 35% in women who were treated, and live birth was 35% in women who underwent placebo or no treatment. There was no difference in miscarriage nor neonatal outcomes between treatment and no treatment. The authors conclude that moderate to high quality evidence demonstrates that the use of levothyroxine is not associated with improvements in clinical pregnancy outcomes among women who are positive for thyroid peroxidase antibody. The commentary from Gavrizi and Wild from the University of Oklahoma notes that the sensitivity analyses that these authors did uh, demonstrate that they cannot rule out that levothyroxine may not have a 10% improvement in live birth. And therefore, they conclude that each patient should be analyzed in a nuanced way based upon their own presentation and the interpretation of the data. I would argue the converse. I think an intervention should have proven benefit before we widely implement it, instead of arguing that we have not completely disproven that levothyroxine might not be of some benefit. Eve, what are your thoughts? I agree. And I think that there's a tendency just to throw treatments at women because they haven't been disproven. And I will say in my clinical practice, I find that a lot of women who don't truly have hypothyroidism, who start taking thyroid replacement hormone, don't feel well on it. it causes palpitations, can cause or exacerbate anxiety, and it's not without detriment. Yeah, I completely agree. I agree, but it's a really hard dilemma. Sometimes we have preliminary information that something's works and we're eager to try it. Not everything needs a randomized trial, but at the same token, if we just keep throwing treatments at women, I don't think we're helping. Yeah, and the same can be true for diagnostic testing. And this next paper is called Revisiting the Role of Serum Progesterone as a Test of Ovulation in Eumenorrheic Subfertile Women, a Prospective Diagnostic Accuracy Study from Chinta and others from Valor, India. So ovulatory dysfunction accounts for up to 40% of female subfertility, and most cases can be diagnosed with a careful menstrual history. The UK National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence and the NICE guidelines recommended midluteal progesterone testing for confirming ovulation even in women with regular menses, while the ASRM Practice Committee guidelines recommend assessing ovulatory function as part of the female workup, but there are no specific tests recommended, meaning a clinical history of regular menses could suffice. The authors cite prior research that showed the presence of anovulation in eumenorrheic women to range between 3% and 19%. This was a prospective diagnostic accuracy study with three objectives. One, estimate the prevalence of ovulatory cycles in eumenorrheic subfertile women using two different approaches, a serum midluteal progesterone and a single well-timed ultrasound exam. The second objective was to compare the diagnostic accuracy of a single well-timed transvaginal ultrasound and compare that level in detecting the ovulatory cycle. And the third was to estimate the positive predictive value of self-reported history of regular menstrual cycles in identifying ovulatory cycles when another test was performed as a reference test. The patients in this study were infertile or subfertile women, ages 21 to 35, with menstrual cycles also ranging from 21 to 35 days. The findings of this study were very much in line with the classic teaching that a carefully taken menstrual history can assess ovulatory status. A single well-timed ultrasound, either in the late follicular phase showing a dominant follicle, or in the luteal phase revealing a corpus luteum or free fluid with a collapsed follicle, demonstrated an ovulatory cycle in 97.6% of women. The positive predictive value for self-reported history of regular cycles was 89%. The study found a very high prevalence of ovulatory cycles in subfertile eumenorrheic women and found almost perfect agreement between a single well-timed ultrasound and midluteal progesterone levels in identifying the ovulatory cycle. The probability of a regular cycle being ovulatory was 93% and increased to 99.5% with the addition of midluteal progesterone. I think overall the study was really well done and I commend the authors on their rigorous methodology. But I have to say, the study makes me agree more with the ASRM guidelines here as opposed to the NICE guidelines 
And I still wouldn't recommend the addition of midluteal progesterone to the evaluation of UMen or ICH women. And I think this goes back to our earliest point about teaching residents and teaching fellows. And I think that the more that we understand basic menstrual cycle physiology, the more careful of a history we can elicit. And that's a huge clue to the underlying diagnosis with each patient who presents with infertility. Eve, I think that's a great point. This paper and the other one from Sunny Mumford that she talks about in her commentary actually caused us to discuss this at our NIH Walter Reed Academics and remove progesterone from our standard order set. We just always did it because we always did it. And you might say there's no harm in doing it, but you know, you got to drive through the beltway, get get on park, get a blood stick. Uh, and if it's not adding value, why are, why are we putting our, our women through that? So sometimes more is less. I think that's what we're learning from some of these articles today. That's a good point. I agree with you guys also. So I'm going to completely change the topic here. I'm going to talk about an article entitled Reproducible Research Practices and Transparency and Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Articles. This is a, a high-level group of productive researchers and leaders in the field. The authors include Drs. Kemper, Rolnick, Mole, and Ioannidis. So science is optimal when it's transparent, shared, and reproduced. We rely on medical literature to give us the evidence for the way we practice. We need to trust the medical literature as being accurate. Having said that, science research is big business. And we also understand that there are a variety of reasons to publish. And therefore, we need to be wary of conflict of interest, exaggeration, fabrication, and in some cases, even fraud. So that begs the question regarding how good are our journals in ensuring that the data that they're publishing is of high quality. So meta-research is research about research practices. And this paper reviews the research practices in our field. This study evaluates the movement in the general research field to increase transparency, registration of clinical trials, and data sharing. I would venture to say that the quality of research has increased over the years, and this paper takes a snapshot to see if that is indeed true. So in this study, the authors evaluate 222 articles from 2013 to 18 and compare the quality in reproductive journals to the so-called high-impact journals, such as New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Lancet, and the BMI. One could look at these findings as either half full or half empty. Some, but not all, in fact, less than half, of the studies were registered, shared a protocol, or explicitly commented that they would share the raw data. Specifically, all randomized clinical trials were registered, but most meta-analyses were not. Overall, the authors did notice improvement with time and greater transparencies in high-impact journals rather than lower-impact journals. Now, it's interesting to pontificate if the trials that are registered share protocols, declare novelty, and have statements of conflict are inherently more impactful, and that's why they get into high-impact journals, or if it's the standards of the high-impact journals that require these characteristics leave trials without these characteristics to other journals. Of note, I think times are changing, and this is pointed out in a reflection piece by Dr. Bates. I think standards will only increase over time. Team science with research collaboration are replacing studies from single practices. Moreover, clinical trials and other studies performed in a single practice in a short period of time are undergoing and should undergo greater scrutiny to ensure their validity. Research integrity is paramount. It's worth taking a snapshot of the quality of our literature every once in a while. Of note, while we can interpret that transparency and we can always improve it. This paper is more of a rallying cry to improve rather than critique past action. While I understand no one likes bureaucracy and new regulations are time consuming and logistically challenging, registering of trials, sharing protocols, declaring potential conflicts of interest, and sharing data with other investigators does promote research transparency and does increase the quality of findings. That's what we should all be striving for, and we should support this transparency of research. I believe that the finding of this paper that the majority of articles are not registered and do not have access to protocols is not condemning the research, but again is a starting point from which we should improve. Quality assurance measures such as requiring prospective registration, routine availability of protocols, data sharing with emphasis on replication will only improve the research that provides the underpinning of our clinical practice. Great. Thank you, Kurt. I loved hearing your perspective on that uh, with all your experience as an editor, and I, I don't think we can 
overstate the importance of integrity in, in the research that we do and that we publish. So we're moving on now to reproductive science. So to better characterize the follicle populations in ovarian tissue harvest and xenograft population, Masiangelo and colleagues from Brussels, Belgium, performed the study follicle populations and vascularization in ovarian tissue of pediatric patients before and after long-term grafting. Frozen ovarian tissue from five deceased children and seven adult cancer patients were analyzed via histology and electron microscopy before and after xenografting into mice. Follicle density was higher in the pediatric patients than adults, and even though it decreased after transplantation into the mice in both groups, it still remained higher in the pediatric population. In the pediatric group, quiescent stage follicles were the majority of the follicle pool, both before and after the grafting, while growing follicles increased in both groups after the xenograft. The authors conclude that there are differences in the follicle density between pediatric and adult patients, but the follicle proportions were similar both before and after grafting, and pediatric tissue contained more and larger immature vessels than adult tissue. Perez and Cervello from Valencia, Spain, note that this is the first study to demonstrate differential behavior of ovarian tissue transplanted from young pediatric versus adult patients. They explore experimental research as well into the need to develop artificial ovaries. So this was a small but interesting paper in what is obviously a very challenging group when we get prepubertal patients who suffer from cancer. That was fascinating, Micah. I am going to transition to our last paper of the episode, which is activation of AKT by WINT4 as a regulator of uterine lyomyoma stem cell function. This was a paper by Shemang Liu with senior author Sergey Bulin from Northwestern. The objective of this study was to investigate the functional interaction between WINT4 and beta-catenin and protein kinase B pathways in uterine myomyoma stem cells. As this audience is well aware, fibroids affect approximately 80% of women by the age of 50, and in the U.S., more than 200,000 surgeries are performed annually due to fibroids at an estimated cost between $6 and $34 billion. So in essence, better treatments are needed, and developing a fundamental understanding of the pathways involved can act as targets for novel drug development for prevention or treatment of fibroids. Previous studies have shown that a small stem cell-like population is responsible for the initiation of lyomyoma. In this study, three different cell types were identified, lyomyoma stem cells, lyomyoma intermediate cells, and terminally differentiated lyomyoma cells. The majority of the cells in a fibroid are this last category of terminally differentiated cells. And it is understood that lyomyoma stem cells drive the proliferation, regeneration, and tumor growth. The intermediate cells express high levels of progesterone receptors, cytokines like rank ligand, growth factors, and extracellular matrix proteins. These intermediate cells transduce paracrine mitotic signals to the stem cell population to stimulate cell renewal and proliferation. The authors give some background on the WINT pathway. Bear with me, it's, it's a little bit confusing. In the presence of WINT signals, activated beta-catenin translocates to the nucleus and upregulates expression of target genes to promote cell proliferation. This group has previously demonstrated that the role of the WINT beta-catenin pathway in fibroid tumorigenesis in the constitutive activation of beta-catenin in the stroma and muscle cells leads to lyomyoma tumor development. The AKT pathway also plays various roles in tumor development and has been shown to be very relevant in fibroids. IGF-2 activates the PI3K AKT pathway to regulate lyomyoma stem cell proliferation. And so in this study, the authors explored the interaction between these various pathways in primary lyomyoma cells and lyomyoma stem cells sorted from lyomyoma tissue. The take-home point of this study is that WINT4 induces AKT-dependent beta-catenin activation and is a novel regulator of uterine lyomyoma stem cell function. There was a really good reflections piece written on this paper by Hortensio Ferreira from EVRMA, who suggested that a treatment that inhibits the WINT beta-catenin pathway 
could be an effective way to treat fibroids, and several studies in both cancer and fibroids have suggested that vitamin D metabolites may be used to reduce tumor size through this Wnt beta catenin pathway inhibition. Thanks, Eve. Uh, that sounded like a, a mouthful, but I'm glad you got through it. So that concludes all of the written articles in Fertility and Serility. I want to remind everybody that Fertility and Serility also has video articles, and there's three articles that you can look at as well. Hidden Space Treatment of an Occult Uterovaginal Septum, Performing Laparoscopic Adenomyectomy with a Four-Pedal Method, and Surgical Approach of Drug-Free in vitro activation and laparoscopic ovarian incision to treat patients with ovarian infertility. I also want to tell everybody, I hope we see them on the dialogue. Please, if you're not already a member, log on to the dialogue and you can comment on any of these articles. And with that, I think we've made it, Eve and Micah. We've made it through another content of fertility and sterility and survived. Cover to cover in an hour or less. Our next episode will be 2021, and I think we'll all be happy to have 2020 behind us. Thank you all very much. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.